Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace as we seek to learn and apply what your word teaches about the distinction in the sex roles and how those distinctions are to be lived out in a way that honors Christ as individuals in our families and in this society writ large. Lord, there is such a sweeping current coming from the world, teaching us to be quite contrary to what we were intended to be, what we have been redeemed in Christ to be. Counteracting that requires immense effort, consistent training, and above all, it requires the influence of your Spirit, Lord, to guide us and to direct us. I pray that you give me grace in communicating these things. I pray for grace in your congregation to understand that this comes from a place of love and compassion and a desire to help them, not a desire to condemn them, but rather that it is a helping hand up. I pray that you give us all grace as we consider these things for the coming weeks, beginning with this week. And I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. As was indicated from the prayer, and for the two of you that actually look at the bulletin, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Acts for a little while, maybe a half dozen sermons or so. We'll see how it goes. And the reason for this is that we're going to be engaging in a study primarily through the book of Proverbs. And so be on biblical expressions of masculinity and femininity, as well as how men and women and boys and girls are to reflect the image of God in their respective roles within God-ordained family and society. Now, because we are going through the book of Proverbs, this will of necessity be a survey of that book. So typically when we go through books of the Bible, we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, but if you've read Proverbs, you know that it's not laid out that way. You'll have a very broad sampling of uh, issues in the same chapter, in the same block of verses. Now in part, the impetus for this study of sex roles is that the annual Bible-thumping wingnut builders summit has come back around. It is a conference of sorts, they don't like that term, but something like that. Uh, for men, and so I always have to do a sermon this time of year for men in particular, but that only obviously accounts for a sermon on masculinity. But I figured here, since I have to break from Acts anyhow, I will take the opportunity to fill out the rest of the aforementioned and interrelated subjects. And I'm doing this for one primary reason, and that is that more than one individual and multiple families in this congregation are presently dishonoring Christ and besmirching his holy name by either their ignorance of or their willful rebellion against what Scripture plainly teaches about the roles of men, women, and family, as well as the biblical standard for these roles and relationships. And the comprehension and application of these critical roles is not just being missed by a little in some instances, it's being missed by a lot. In multiple individuals and homes, even in this little church, the margin for error with these things is so great that there are going to be generational consequences if they're not addressed very clearly and directly with the result of repentance. And so I will make very clear now that this will be at least among the most direct and pointed series of sermons that I have ever preached, if not the most, because the culture cannot be permitted to corrupt Christ's church, especially not in this arena. And with respect to culture, recently I had a conversation with one of you and the question arose, how do we know when the culture 
has infiltrated the church, or if? And the answer is this. If a thing is in the culture writ large, it has certainly infiltrated the church. And the question is only of one of degree. And I base this assessment both upon observation and anecdote as well as the nature of the epistles themselves. Ephesians is the only general epistle, not really speaking to any situation or set of circumstances directly or cultural influence. All of the rest of them, without exception, do speak very directly to things from the culture that are seeping into the church. It's true of Romans, it's true of Colossians, it's true of James and Jude, all of them. The seven letters in the book of Revelation very directly speak, and that's the Lord Jesus himself, to issues of the culture that have crept into the church. And like these examples, this church has imbibed antichrist cultural practices as well, and specifically with respect to the roles of the two sexes within and without the family. And in some instances, these are glaring. They are obvious enough and pervasive enough that private conversations which have been had in many instances are no longer sufficient. Uh, One of you told me recently of an account of a previous pastor of yours who addressed a certain sin publicly, and that account very much relates to and explains what my approach is going to be to these issues and why. So I'm going to use it here to illustrate what needs to happen here and what is going to happen here. There was evidently a circumstance in a relatively large church where a pastor walked down the center aisle of the church to assume the pulpit, and on his way down saw multiple men in the congregation gawking at the young ladies in the congregation as they walked by. Then he assumed the pulpit and, without stating their names directly, referred to that incident specifically. And apparently there was quite the dust-up as a result of him doing that. Now, was he right to do that? Absolutely he was right to do that for multiple reasons. Let me explain them to you. First of all, there's the public nature of the sin. If you do a thing publicly, and that thing is going to cause consequences in the rest of the congregation because it is public, it is observed, that has to be addressed from the pulpit. You determine the sphere, not the preacher. So if you make it public, then it has to be addressed publicly. And they did, and so it did. Secondly, there's the sin and its consequences, and the fact that they were seen and felt in the entire congregation. So here you have these men doing this. Uh, Those young ladies have parents. Depending upon their age, they have husbands. You can't do that sort of thing in a congregation. We're all men. We all know how this works. We can give great compassion to each other when we struggle, and in many ways, but that you can't do there. You also can't do that in the congregation because this is where the people of God come together And the Spirit of God specially manifests as a result of that gathering and that fellowship. You can't defile it in that way. And thirdly, he was right to correct it in that way publicly because Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. No man that loves his congregation does not seek to know their struggles and to help them accordingly. Or in other words, Proverbs 27.23, spiritually applied, the pastor will know well the condition of his flock and pay attention to his herd and, of course, to the end, that they thrive. Furthermore, greater far than his love for his congregation, if he is a godly man, is going to be his love for the Holy One of Proverbs 30, verse 3, who has, continuing in verse 4, ascended into heaven and descended, who has gathered the wind into his fists, who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Now, although it wasn't expressed in my tone, those who has statements were actually not statements. They were posed as questions. This is a Job-like circumstance designed to evoke awe in the reader by revealing the unsearchable depths of God and his unknowability. But 2,000 years post-cross, they're no longer questions. I do, in fact, know his son's name. It's Jesus. I further know that I'm going to stand before him and give an account for how I've led this congregation. And so though I have failed often and in many ways, I am not going to hand you all over to satanic counterfeits and contradictions when I can see these things things plainly taking root in this congregation. And there's also another apropos warning for me in the same chapter that motivates me to do right by God with respect to you. It's found in verse 17. 
and that is if father is given a capital F instead of a lowercase one. Verse 17 denounces the I that mocks a father. If that is spiritually applied, surely it is rightly applied to Father God and to the pastor who turns a blind eye to ever-growing, deeply entrenched, and increasingly pervasive sins in his own church. So although I am not going to name names, nor am I going to use specific situations from anybody's life without their consent, these will not be general lessons either. And in a church this small, if you fit well enough into a certain pattern of sin, people are going to know it applies to you. And for this fact, let it be known to you that I offer no apology, and I'm not going to offer an apology for this. But although I will offer you no apology, I certainly will offer you a hand of help. Because although many of your sins are about to be put on display, so will many of mine. I have a deep well of past experiences in sins to draw from. And the majority of the applications that I make are from my own experience, not anybody else's. And in the present, I am not the paragon of all virtue with respect to the things that I'm going to be preaching. So, yes, I know you well, sinner, but it is only because I am just like you. So, what I am calling you to now is a time of growing together as a people. As brothers and sisters in Christ, no one higher, no one lower, no one better, no one worse, that we may better magnify the name of Jesus. And to that end, what I have for you this afternoon is really just a four-point introduction for all of what will be coming in the coming weeks. However, without this, the rest of what I'm going to say to you in the coming weeks is going to be for naught, as I trust you will see as we go. This is the absolutely critical and essential foundation for all that comes next. And in fact, these elements are so critical that I'm going to keep bringing a lot of them up because without them, this doesn't work. Well, point number one is the necessity of the abundance of counselors as the essential means of enabling repentance. The necessity of the abundance of counselors as the essential means of enabling repentance. Well, Solomon speaks repeatedly about the need for a multiplicity, a plurality of voices, all giving wise counsel to a particular individual with respect to a certain situation. Here are just a couple examples of this. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. However, of course, these are wise counselors. This is not, then, the majority rules. In fact, because there's a narrow path, and that's what the Christian life is, and few they are that find it, this is always actually going to be a minority rule. And that minority is to be wise by God's standard, which is Solomon's whole foundation for wisdom in the first place. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, also rightly translated wisdom. Uh, to conversely accept unwise counsel that is spiritually bankrupt is to fall into the trap that he warns you about in Proverbs 4, 14, and 19, among other places. It is to enter the path of the wicked and proceed in the way of evil men. The way of the wicked is like darkness, he says. They do not know over what they stumble. So if you don't want to stumble into darkness, many voices are needed, and as many of those voices as possible need to be wise with God's wisdom. So then, what a person needs is a majority-minority. They need an exceptionally high percentage of narrow path walkers to be together in one place so that they can counsel them, so that they can meet that Solomonic threshold of an abundance of counselors. Now, wherever shall we find this nexus of wise counselors? Well, why consistent with Solomon's wisdom? The local church, of course. And Paul in Ephesians speaks to this, Ephesians 4:15 and 25. Speaking the truth in love, in context, in the local church, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, this church holds the public preaching of the word in as high esteem as you will ever find. And that is why you're all here. Because we regard preaching as primary because it is the communication of the very words of God. However, because I hold the word in highest esteem, I understand, per Solomon and Paul, 
that public preaching cannot be the end of our teaching, reproof, correction, or training in righteousness. Because if it is, then the man of God is not going to be adequate and equipped for every good work. Even Jesus himself did not just preach and leave it at that. Rather, on how many occasions did the disciples press into him after a sermon was preached in order to get deeper into what he had spoken? It required hands-on care. It always does. And personal application on a private person-to-person level. And Paul's vision of the church found in those passages in Ephesians 4 is the man in the pulpit feeding the flock and then individual sheep in that same flock refeeding the same word to each other. And it has to be this way because they know each other. And therefore, they are positioned to know how that word needs to be specifically applied in those specific lives. Like David, and I'm going to use his example with Nathan uh, multiple times throughout this, so here's the first one. But like David, we for the most part know the word. Like David, we're all very much better at applying that word to somebody else. Therefore, like David, our that man must die needs to become I am the one who deserves to die, and that requires somebody else saying that man is you. And as was indicated, if the truths in these sermons about biblical masculinity and femininity and family roles are not taken by you in the congregation and used in private conversation to say that man, woman, or child is you, this is going to be a vain exercise for the next half a dozen sermons or so, which accounts for about six hours of my life. It'll just be me hearing the sound of my own voice and nothing more than that. What you're dealing with here, what I'm asking you to confront on the authority of the Word of God is deep spiritual blindness. And that is a very, very powerful force to overcome. It's such a powerful force to overcome that wisdom needs to do what in Proverbs one twenty. Gently whisper. No, wisdom needs to shout. And have you ever read about that concept and thought, what a perverse and strange concept for wisdom? What a strange place for it to have to be put in. That is exactly the sentiment that you should have when you read that. That's exactly what Solomon intended to be understood. Because Solomon teaches throughout Proverbs that wisdom is prerequisite to success of all kinds in both the spiritual and the natural spheres. First book I ever read on Proverbs was about business because I was a businessman. And so I wanted to learn what he taught about that. But how do you be a successful businessman? You seek and receive wisdom. And how can you be saved from the wrath of God? You have to receive the wisdom of the gospel. How can you be a godly man or woman and have a fruitful godly heritage with children who are at peace and a blessed posterity and a fruitful, faithful local church? You seek and receive wisdom. So then considering the manifest, manifold benefits of wisdom, why must wisdom shout? Shouldn't wisdom just be able to give the most gentle whisper? Actually, wisdom shouldn't even have to do that. Shouldn't it be in the position of so many wise gurus that I've seen in so many movies? On the top of a mountain in Tibet, I guess, somewhere. And here comes this Westerner having hiked many hundreds of miles, shoes torn and tattered, clothes torn and tattered, scraggly hair, half-starved, because they were willing to make this trek to get there because that is what wisdom is worth. So then why must actual wisdom, not the fictitious kind that's depicted in so many movies and embodied in some guru, why must it shout? Well, because sin makes death. And this is especially true when considering the nature of sins like denying sex roles within and without the family as they are taught to us in Scripture. Some sins are picked up in passing. Other sins are more tertiary. But that's never true when it comes to not being the man, woman, father, or mother that Christ has commanded you to be. That marks an abdication of fundamental role distinctions. And these things are much more central to who we are, and they are almost always generational, which is a concept we will address at length. But to see this at work, you can just go through a cursory reading of the Kings and the Chronicles and see the way that sons learn from fathers how to commit evil. Now, we don't need to be taught uh, 
to sin. We are sinners by nature, but when our sin natures are shaped and molded in ways that become fundamental to our lives, at the deepest levels by our parents and our grandparents, those sins are often not seen as sins, even though they may be gross, even though they may be so obvious and overt that everyone and anyone around us with any discernment can see them, yet we will still be blind to them. And one reason for this is that common experience crowds out critical thinking. Common experience crowds out critical thinking. If it has been the way of it for you your entire life, you will not analyze it because it has simply been the air that you breathe. Well, of course it is right. We've always been doing it. And another reason for this blindness and deafness is pride. And pride manifests specifically in the sentiment that there's no way that there could be something this definitional of me without me noticing it all these years. And now somebody's coming to me and a group of people are coming to me. I am smarter than that. It's not about that kind of smart. Okay? And if you're in this kind of a situation, I have been there myself. I had an epiphany, a very dark epiphany, several years into my marriage about my own nature and who I had become. And I responded to it in a way that was not good, was not fruitful, and was not helpful. But I had that same sense. And I was very, very angry that I had been so morally stupid. But then much of this deafness and blindness is also just flat out willful. When patterns of sin have defined your family for generations and you for decades, rooting them out requires Herculean levels of effort, even as spirit and dwelt and empowered believers. And I'll be very upfront with you about that. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. The strain that comes from the effort of this kind of sanctification is so great that it is the closest that you and I are ever going to get to sweating drops of blood in the garden. It's not the sort of thing that's done in a day. It's not done in a week. It's not done in a month. It's not done in a year. It's probably not ever going to be done this side of heaven to the extent that you can just let go and coast without it making a raging, roaring comeback. And so the person entrenched in these sins commonly subverts reality itself so that they don't even have to acknowledge that the sins exist in the first place. And the person who does this is in a very, very, very dangerous place. People who can deny absolutely glaring sins in themselves and others that are close to them cannot grow as Christians. They cannot help others grow as Christians. In fact, they will cause tremendous damage to those that they are supposed to be loving the most. I'm going to give you a couple examples. One of a young man, one of a young woman. We'll start with the young man here. He is, say, raised in a home fathered by a weak man, dominated by a woman. And so the roles are reversed. She is leading, he is following. A little boy who's raised in this kind of a home is generally going to become a weak man himself, who abdicates his responsibilities to lead as well. But if he becomes a Christian, he's going to be confronted in at least his private studies with the need to correct sin in his household. And he will often, therefore, at least pay lip service to this. But because he idolizes his wife, he idolizes the comfort that comes from non-confrontation, he has got to find a way out, which is going to come in the form of a rationalization. And this generally involves a denial that any need to correct sin exists because there is no sin. And so he glosses over the sins of his household altogether, as gross as they are, or at least he diminishes them greatly and puts them into a category of, well, we all have issues, even though this clearly exceeds that category. So the cost of preserving his lie about himself, i.e., that he is not weak, that he, is in, that he is not in sin, that he is not a feckless, faithless, failed and failing husband and father, becomes the spinning of so many other lies. And the consequences of these lies is that his whole family drowns in sin because the one that God has put into that household to rescue them from the consequences of their sin is not strong enough to do it. Or here's another very common example from our day and one that will be revisited when we address families specifically because it is that common in our day. You may have a little girl who's raised in a home where she is the princess and if you call your little girl princess, I'm not rebuking you for that. I'm talking about the way that that commonly manifests. So in other words, 
She can do no wrong. She doesn't actually have to meaningfully contribute to the household. She's not being raised in a way as to promote and facilitate her being the manager of a household at some point, raising children. If she is treated this way, she becomes entitled and lazy. And so she grows into an entitled, selfish woman who behaves as though nobody has ever had it as bad as she has it. And so maybe she has one, two, or three children. And these children then become the justification to shirk many basic responsibilities that she has to others, including in her local church. Never mind the fact that mothers in previous generations did twice as much with twice as many children or more. Never mind the fact that there are many examples of these kinds of faithful mothers around her. She still persists in this lie that nobody's ever had it this hard, and so her dereliction in relationships and duties within and without the church are justified when, in fact, they are very much not. And she will fight very hard to maintain this fiction because if she does not maintain it, she will have to acknowledge that she's just not a very faithful Christian and that the truth is that neither Christ nor her children's spiritual well-being are all that important to her. And, of course, I have just defined perhaps a majority of millennial parents in local churches. As seen in both of those examples, the preservation of deeply ensconced personal sins always requires the denial of obvious realities. Here is that example of David and Nathan again. How does David not know that what he is doing is as evil as it manifestly is? He has committed murder He has committed adultery. He is heaped upon a mountain of lies. He has defiled the worship of God by continuing to engage in it. And yet he is very much surprised when Nathan says what he says and gets to the punchline about the whole story of sheep and the shepherd and all that stuff. And you know that he's surprised because of that visceral reaction. He's not faking it. How is he surprised? Behold the power of self-delusion and self-denial. And when we talk about unfulfilled sex roles and family roles, this is often the kind of self-delusion that we're talking about. And so generalized statements coming from the pulpit are not going to cut it. In a church meeting not that long ago, I used the example of Bob. And if you recall this, if you were there, Bob, he's sitting in a sermon on biblical masculinity, and everybody around Bob knows that this brother struggles immensely in this area, and so they're all thinking, oh, praise the Lord. Bob's finally hearing it. Clearly, he's getting what he needs. Meanwhile, Bob's sitting there, and he's thinking, I am so glad that Jerry is here to hear this. I mean, this doesn't so much pertain to me, but Jerry. Jerry definitely needs to hear this. That's the way that this works. Same thing with Mary. She'll hear some sermon that ought to be piercing to her and just redirect it to some other woman in the church. These things must be spoken to directly, personally, and with the utmost clarity. You need to understand that somebody who's working as hard as David is to justify his or her own sin cannot be approached with anything less than laser-like specificity. If you are going to beat around the bush or allow them to make absurd excuses, do not go talk to them at all, because all you will accomplish is to make it worse. Now, that does not mean that you need to be brutal. Now, perhaps, especially when it comes to men, there is a point of rhetorical beard-pulling vis-a-vis Nehemiah 13. But that's not where you start. You have to go through the process. You have to let the situation escalate on its own. You start with a soft answer in order to turn away wrath, Proverbs 15.1, and in order to keep it away and prevent it from occurring in the first place if you can. Don't go in guns blazing to a situation that you don't even know is a gunfight. Now, if there is a need to escalate rhetoric, that escalation needs to have its place. And it needs to be because of the hardness of the heart of the person being corrected. It shouldn't be hastened by the one doing the correcting. You're speaking to one of Christ's sheep. So be gentle when you're able to. And when you need to be stern, it needs to be because of their response or lack thereof to you. So what kinds of people should be doing a correcting in a local church? Well, anybody who's mature enough i.e., you who are spiritual, restore such a one, Galatians 6.1. And this is exactly the kind of counselor that Solomon is promoting. 
And this can be somebody relatively younger or it can be somebody relatively older. My friend Andy was here recently and he rightly conveyed to you that spiritual maturity is not contingent upon age necessarily. That's true. And so there are going to be people who are in your own age group that need to come to you. However, now I'm going to implore you saints who are older to especially undertake the counseling of young people in this congregation and young parents. And I'm going to do this because of Titus 2. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That is the natural order of things. For the older to go to the younger, those who have more experience to go to those who have less experience. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. But then the question may come up, what if I have characteristically failed as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a wife, as a Christian man or a Christian woman, or failed demonstrably prior to converting to Christ, and I still bear the consequences of that now presently? Well, first of all, have you repented of your past sins? Because if you've repented of your past sins, then you are present tense, one who is spiritual, and therefore you qualify. And your past failures, if anything, are more of a reason for you to become a counselor to the one who is in need. They are not less. You are a cautionary tale. Your life is a living testimony to what happens when you do not obey the Lord in these critical areas. You can show them that. But on the other hand, if you've had more or less success in these areas, none of us are perfect, but if you have a godly heritage as a result of having been faithful, you're in a great position too. Because you can say, this is what happens when you obey. My life, too, is a living testimony. So there's great value in the counsel of the one who has been faithful and therefore blessed, as well as there is in the counsel of the one who was unfaithful but is now redeemed. And Solomon, our author, was actually both of these, depending upon what point in his life you're talking about. Right now, he's writing as one who gets it, who's subscribed to wisdom, who is the fountainhead of all things wise. As he writes Ecclesiastes, he will write it from the perspective of a man who has been broken by his own evil wickedness and who has broken everybody around him as a consequence of it too and is literally going to bring judgment upon the people of God. And we read both of these books, don't we? And we cherish them, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The Lord can take your good testimony and he can redeem your bad testimony. But both of those things belong to the Lord. And you have an obligation to give them to the body in order to aid them in their sanctification. Now to sum this point up, all that I have said to you is manifestly true in this church specifically, and I want to highlight this, and I do this by permission of the people to whom this pertains, even though I will not use their names. You're going to know who they are. Again, it's a small church. There are several young men in this church that needed to go be men independently, okay? That needed to break away from their parents and how they broke away is extremely instructive. It was not the result of a sermon. It was a result of a man who was older in the faith going to them and saying, it dishonors the Lord for your primary identity at the age that you are at to continue to be son of parents. It dishonors Christ. At this stage, you are to be looking to build the kingdom by building a family. And well, you cannot manifest an Eve from the dirt, sadly, and get yourself a wife. What you can do is build a life that can support her when the Lord supplies her to you. Go do that. Get out now. Get out now. Yesterday was a good day. Why did you not leave yesterday? And of course, I'm being hyperbolic because these things take time to line up. But I'm not being that hyperbolic in terms of the approach that was taken. And then once you're out, get a better job. Don't have a mediocre job. Get the best job. Get yourself in the best situation that you can to be able to support the young lady that the Lord has for you when he gives her 
to you. That's your responsibility before the Lord. That has, how, that has been how this has happened. It wasn't a sermon. It was private rebuke, repeatedly. Not said once, said over and over and over again. And said in the context of a relationship wherein these young men knew that they were loved by the person who was doing that. And knew that it was for their building and not for their breaking. And also let me encourage you as you engage in this fight, for you who are spiritual, who are being called here to go help these people. And this is with a thought that greatly encouraged me. I grew up in a church in a denomination that had many, many battles, and all churches are like this. Okay? We're fallen creatures living in a fallen space. We're always fighting about something. But the stuff that we were fighting about when I was growing up as a kid was always stupid. Uh, let me try to, try to remember. Uh, one person in the church was darn near put on church discipline for taking one of their children to go see Jungle Book. This is like the original back in the 70s or 80s, whatever that is. I remember another fight that we had about whether drum tracks should be allowed on accompaniment that was taped. And by drum tracks, I mean essentially a metronome involving a, a digital snare drum. It was like the most subdued thing in the world, but this was a big issue. Uh, we had all kinds of issues like this, the type of music and just petty nonsense in light of the fact that souls were dying and going to hell. I'm calling you here to fight, but I'm calling you here to fight for something that matters. I'm calling you here to fight for the souls of the little children who are in this congregation because the Lord will use a marriage that testifies to the gospel to save them according to the gospel. I'm asking you here to fight against the consequences of generational sin so that it stops. I'm asking you here to fight for the redemption of families in this church by which the Lord will redeem this church, by which the Lord will redeem the whole society and civilization. That is actually what is at stake when we talk about the distinction in sex roles. So you're going to fight. There's no escaping the fight. You are, however, being asked to engage in a fight with eternal implications. One that matters. So step up. Point number two, the necessity of observational sociological learning as it is modeled by Solomon. The necessity of observational sociological learning as it is modeled by Solomon. One of the most important lessons from the book of Proverbs is also one of the most obvious ones. And that is not necessarily what Solomon has learned. It is how he has learned all that he has learned. And that is by observation of others and the application of a biblical worldview to that observation. So he has, and I'll just give you a really brief survey of the first couple chapters. He has watched the wise man, as he calls him of chapter 1, verse 5, in the outcome of his life. He's watched the sinner in the outcome of his sin, chapter 1, verse 10, and the murderer of 116, and the naive simpleton of 122, and the fool of 132, and the godly one of 28, and the speaker of perverse things of 2.12, and the adulteress of 2.16, and the upright of 2.21. And again, that was just a, a brief glance at the first two chapters. Solomon goes through and he distinguishes many more categories of humanity than this in terms of patterns of sin. I'll give you a few more examples. The drunkard, the glutton, the sluggard, etc. But this whole book is observations of behavior, and identifying and distinguishing between social and personal categories and the outcomes of these different categories and their behaviors seen from a long-angle lens, which is something that we just talked about from the Psalms. For those of you that were at Peniel, you have to see the arc of their life. You can't look at it in the center and say, oh, these things are working out. In the end, they will not work out. And so he charts their course and determines how it ends and records that. So this means that in modern speak, Solomon is a social scientist. He is what would be called in our day a sociologist. But in contrast to modern pagan sociologists, Solomon is not trying to pick out one obscure example in some Indian tribe somewhere where a handful of men used to dress in dresses because it made them feel pretty and then extrapolate from that a principle as to how all of us should live in society and erase sex roles. 
And Solomon isn't trying to do something like that because he has a biblical worldview. Solomon believes that people are created in the image of God, not that they are cosmic accidents. And Solomon also critically believes that people are fallen by nature. He does not believe that people are fundamentally good. Because if you do believe falsely that people are fundamentally good, man is your concept of sociology going to be warped. Well, my primary point here is that in engaging in observational social sciences, Solomon has established a pattern for us all. And he commends this kind of observation to us all, not only by example, but also in passages like Proverbs 19.25, strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd or wise. Now, the naive become wise in that scenario. Why? Because they observed the scoffer receive a beating for being a scoffer, and they said, you know what? I don't think I need to learn this in personal experience. I'll just let him be my guide through his example. Proverbs 21.12 says something similar. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. Considers the house of the wicked. Now, I think it's a sad feature in our natures that we simply must learn from the school of hard knocks from watching other people get beaten. Nevertheless, it's manifestly true as you observe our race. But that does not mean that you have to be the one personally receiving the knocks. You can watch other people receive them. There are plenty of examples around you. You can attend the school of hard knocks vicariously, not personally, and you need to. However, the lessons that man may derive, as you know, if you're a student of Proverbs, uh, are not limited just to the observation of mankind. God has also written lessons on wisdom into creation, into the natural world, and we're to learn from these as well. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. You know, back towards the beginning of the book, Solomon says in chapter 4, verse 7, that the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. That's profound, isn't it? No, it's very, very simple, but that is where you start. The beginning of wisdom is as he has it, acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Well, taking a biblical worldview and accurate theology and doctrine and applying these things to what you observe around you is very clearly one of the primary means that the wisest man on earth deployed in order to achieve the acquisition of wisdom. And if you want wisdom, you will have to do this as well. But for the most part, we do not do this. And why do we not do this? Because this requires contemplation. And we, in the modern context, don't contemplate anything ever because of modern technology. One of the greatest examples of biblical meditation or contemplation in the whole of Scripture comes from a 14-year-old girl through whom the Savior of the world is going to be born. Mary, according to the text, pondered and treasured all these things in her heart. Things concerning Christ and Him incarnated into her womb. And then the product of that contemplation was one of the greatest theological treatises ever spoken and then transcribed. And we call this the Magnificat, and it is magnificent. But if Mary were the average contemporary 14-year-old young lady, she would have produced no Magnificat because she would have pondered nothing, because instead she would have immediately DM'd Elizabeth and 68 of her other closest friends and posted about the whole thing on multiple social media outlets, hashtag Messiah, hashtag Joseph's going to freak out, hashtag virgin birth, no really, I promise. And then the next three days would have been spent by her being constantly occupied by responding to the responses to her original post. We are drowning in stimuli as a civilization, and we are dying because of it. Suicidality is higher than it has ever been. Depression is higher than it has ever been. All the while, we are richer and more comfortable than we have ever been. And a big part of the reason for this exponential increase in depression and anxiety is that we don't think anymore. And not thinking is really bad because thinking is the only way out of the messes that we are in. 
on an individual level and on a societal level. Our author Solomon, in the greatest twist of irony ever, as I alluded to previously, is going to go on from authoring the magnum opus of all time on wisdom literature to destroying his life and his people with unparalleled wickedness and foolishness. But what brought him back? It was the contemplation of his situation and the results of his foolishness and evil. And you can see this transition back into the light in Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 8. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness. Let him, keyword, remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Modern man does not remember the days of darkness because instead of remembering them, he medicates them away through chemicals or distractions, and thus he never gets to the end of his depression. He never gets to the place that Solomon got to, Ecclesiastes 12:13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. For the most part, modern man is never going to reach that conclusion. And part of the reason is that he has traded 10 words that matter for 10,000 words typed on or spoken by some site or another that don't matter at all. And as Solomon said, Proverbs 10:19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. And one of the greatest transitions, transgressions that derive from a never-ending stream of verbal vomit on some smart device or another is a vacuum of productive assessment of oneself and one's circumstances. In terms of Solomonic observation, which requires Solomonic contemplation, nothing is more important for the Christian to contemplate than the state of their own souls or the state of their own sanctification. Proverbs 25, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Solomon there speaks of a spotlight of discernment, but first and foremost, this light of personal discernment is to be shown inward upon you so that you may be able to remove the plank in your own eye before you attempt to remove the speck in your neighbor's. And this process, of course, occurs with the aid of the Holy Spirit. As the psalmist said, search my heart, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, draw out my innermost thoughts. Expose them to me. None of this stuff happens if you don't shut off the noise. And so you need to shut off the noise that's coming from others, but I will also say that there are far too many of us creating noise for others that prevents them from meditation and also meaningful fellowship. Be very careful about constantly sending memes and silly things to everybody that you know, involving people in group texts. When in, in a modern day, people require their cell phones to work and keep tabs on family members. Consider what you're doing and what you're taking from that other person in that moment. They're with real people. And they have the potential to have real fellowship. And they also have the potential to be with their thoughts, which they desperately need to be with. Somewhere there's some person who's starting to feel the effects of their own rotting soul who is starting to perceive things they desperately need to perceive. A schism that has happened between their mind and their soul. A feeling of deep pain that they need to be able to realize in order to reach out for a Savior. And somewhere this person is in the midst of this great epiphany receiving a meme about Robin and Batman. And Batman is slapping Robin over some new stupid thing or whatever, and then that person goes, hey, what was I thinking about? I don't know, it doesn't matter anyhow. I mean, it's a somewhat joking example of a, a very real, very real thing that happens many, many times over. Don't do that to people. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do it to others. And I will also say this. If you're a man and you're doing this, and a woman, you need to understand that you're deriving something from that. It is also very, very unhealthy. And that is, I'm sorry, a sad and pathetic need for approval from other people. You need to be constantly thought of. You need to be constantly approved. You're literally living for that thumbs up emoji. 
Men and women who know who they are in Christ don't seek this stuff from other people in these trivial ways. Because what we have in Christ fulfills us. This is the least perceptive generation in the history of the human race. And thus there are so many sins that run riot in our churches, often for no other reason than we genuinely have not even considered that they were sins. Because we are morally stupid, and we are morally stupid by satanic design. He uses all these devices and all these distractions to great effect. This must stop. We must be left with the silence in our souls from time to time that we may seek a remedy for what is occurring in them. In our day, philosophy is largely dead. Religion is largely dead. But sin, suicide, depression, and the like are thriving because as humans, we cannot as a matter of our nature, suppress the consequences of thoughtless surrender to our own fallenness. But we can suppress and do thoughtfulness about those consequences and thus guarantee that we remain imprisoned by them. I, for Pete's sakes, if we're going to be conquered as a people, let us not at least be conquered by stupid memes and emojis. Let us have a more worthy adversary or let us not fall at all. Because we have learned and are learning who we are to be in Christ and anchoring ourselves in Him, which requires that the distractions cease. And by the way, because I know how this works, I am not saying don't text me and say hello, okay? Or never text me some funny thing. I'm talking about balance here. I'm never going to receive any text ever again. And this will be the reason for it. That's not what I'm saying. Point number three. The primary necessity for honoring God-given sex roles vis-a-vis Proverbs is the accurate reflection of God's image by we, his image, bearers. The primary necessity for honoring God-given sex roles vis-a-vis Proverbs is the accurate reflection of God's image by we, his image, bearers. Now Solomon focuses primarily on the temporal consequences of foolishness in all its forms. You do this, this bad thing is going to happen to you in this life. My fear is that you will take Solomon in isolation from the rest of Scripture and thus really, really miss the point. In other words, that this will be seen as a merely, merely being the key term there, moral lesson, and not as what it truly is, which is the moral application of spiritual truths. And this happens very commonly with this book. I'm familiar with this from my own past experience. I received a set of lesson plans a curriculum for a junior high class that I was teaching on the book of Proverbs, and I returned it to the youth pastor, and I said, I cannot in good conscience teach this. This is Christless. I said, these are, these are merely moral mandates. I'm not giving this to these kids. I said, you choose somebody else if you need to choose somebody else, but they couldn't choose anybody else because they were hard up for teachers, and so I won. Um, And those children won because they received the gospel. Proverbs is not divorced from the gospel. Proverbs is an extension of, an application of the Christian worldview, which is then applied to ethics or the way that we behave. But the foundation of Christian ethics is that man is made in the image of God. The practice of wisdom and righteousness, as Solomon has it, matters because as Moses had it first, we are not protoplasm sacs or more evolved apes. We bear the image of God, and we Christians have had that image renewed. And so here is the point of wisdom literature. If we are unwise, we bear that image poorly. This is the primary reason why our behavior matters. And to say that we are made in the image of God speaks to, among other things, our moral and spiritual capacity. We alone in all creation have meaningful self-knowledge. We alone in all creation have meaningful what's been called world consciousness. And much more importantly, we alone in all creation have meaningful God consciousness. And we have this God consciousness because we are like God. Not that we are gods, we are men, but we are like him in that we alone share his communicable attributes, creativity, intellect, love, and the like. The animals do not have this capacity. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And we share these attributes that we may act in a manner consistent with the nature of God and his creation. Man who is made in God's image cannot reveal that image if, say, God had created him 
and then placed him in a glass case to be put on a shelf somewhere like some collectible figurine. Inactive. Ineffectual. And so God placed mankind instead in a universe created by him to be active vice-regents of his in that universe as the pinnacle of his creation. And he created man to be social because he is a social being. And this too is what it means to be made in the image of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship with each other. In mankind, there is a trinity as well. Father, mother, and children. We are social because he was first. And so God also, having created us to be social beings, created certain social spheres in which we can live out our natures, marriage, family, and the result of marriage and family, which is society. On the most fundamental level, we engage in all these spheres as humans. But secondarily, we engage in them as males and females. A male in his maleness uniquely reflects the image of God, and a female in her femaleness uniquely reflects the image of God. Both sexes are equally human. They are equally made in God's image. They are equally able to reveal his image by their actions. They are of equal value, but they do not reveal the image of God in the same way. For example, God is strong. God is protector. Do both men and women exhibit strength and provide protection of others? Absolutely, they do. Proverbs has something to say about a she-bear and messing with her cubs. You see a reflection of that in the human race as well. But do both reveal the image of God in their exercise of strength in the same way, to the same degree, with the same effect? No. Clearly, we are strong in different ways. Clearly, a man's power and physical strength, as well as emotional constitution, better reflects certain aspects of God's strength than does a woman. But are both men and women nurturing? Absolutely. And as such, both reveal the image of God in that God nurtures and is nurturing But do men and women nurture in the same way and to the same degree and with the same effect? No, clearly they do not. Women are the primary nurturers. They better reflect the image of God in this. So although both men and women are created by God in his image to the end that they honor that image by revealing his character as only an image bearer can, they have each been created to bear his image differently, if not in kind, certainly in degree. And here is the beautiful thing about the combination of man and woman, that when you combine us, we are far better able to reflect the image of the God who made us than when you separate us or when we transgress against those roles. And to ensure that men and women have the necessary platforms to live out his image and to showcase his divine attributes, God has created what I think of as special theaters for special dramas. I am not a theater man, maybe you are more so than me, but if you are, then you know that certain plays, certain dramas, certain Broadway musicals have had special theaters made for them. There are multiple stages created on this. Uh, There's technology, perhaps, that's in this place, it's not elsewhere, so that this particular drama can be played out in the best way possible. Stages are built just for this. Well, marriage is one such theater when we talk about revealing the image of God. And that which is revealed is a relationship between Christ and his church, which reflects the work of the gospel to a lost and dying world as well as to children that are coming up in the church. There's also the paternal relationship and by by extension maternal. This is another theater. And clearly it is because God represents himself in the first person as the eternal father and in the second person as the eternal son. And the local church is, of course, another theater. There are distinct roles for the sexes in this place in that we are able to reflect the image of God. And, of course, there is society that is another theater. Men and women are to perform their respective roles here as well, and their roles are distinct here as well, or at least they should be. My point is this. Because we are image bearers of God, we cannot help but communicate things about the nature of God. We will whether we want to or not. 
And when we bear his image as he created us to and redeemed us to in Christ, we're telling the truth about him and his nature and his actions. But when we don't, we are slandering him. What sin is it to slander God, to misrepresent his character, to misrepresent him? It is blasphemy. You are in a very real sense blaspheming your creator when you are not honoring the role that he has created you to perform as a man or as a woman in his creation. And if I believe that I'm primarily speaking to spirit-indwelt Christians, then i got to believe that this is the most convicting reason of all that I could give you as to why you must not, in the words of Solomon's father, walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers when it comes to the nature and the roles and the distinctions between the sexes within and without the family. Of course it is true, as our author says, that he who troubles his own house is going to inherit the wind in Proverbs eleven twenty nine. But he who troubles his own house is going to do a lot worse than that. He will, through the lie of a wicked life, blaspheme the one who made him. Well, this has been heavy, and so I would like to end on an encouraging note, something that I think about often. And this won't sound encouraging to Sar, but I assure you it's going there. We Christians, genuine Christians, we are in a vanishingly small percentage of the world's population. But the world's population uh, is increasingly lazy, entitled, distracted by stupid things, unproductive, um, don't know who they are, no sense of their own identity, aren't making anything worth having, worth participating in. And so if we, who are genuinely Christian, will just basically be what the Lord has created us to be and in just basic ways honor what he has laid out for us as patterns. We will rule these pagans within a couple generations. We have to. At some point, basic laws of economics have to have their effect and we will build the kingdom of Christ here in a profound way and that's far more important. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This is a part of what it means to be a man. But I say in this culture, because they are so lacking in competency that we will be kings, if we will only be some semblance of what God has commanded us to be in honoring the sex roles, we can take back this culture. I'm not a post-millennialist at all, but I'm also not a dispensationalist. I'm working through this logically, for a time and for a season. It will get very bad for Christians, as it has always. We will be shut out of the economy. But should the Lord tarry, again, the basic laws of economics will come back into effect, as they did in ancient Egypt. You may not like God's man, but if God's man is the only one that has grain on the face of the earth. You will go and you will buy it from him. These pagans, they produce nothing, only death. They raise children who cannot read. Their only concern is to educate them in wickedness. If they are not preventing pregnancy, they are murdering the children in their own wombs. If they are not murdering the children in their own wombs, they are chopping off their genitals so that they become sterile. If they are not doing that, then they are miseducating them so that they can produce nothing. They are a generation of illiterates. What an opportunity to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But you've got to be the men the women and the children that God has commanded you to be. And you can do it. You can. And we are here to help you. And you are to seek out the ones who can help you, and they are to seek you out as well. These are marching orders, Christian. Receive them as such.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clear testimony in it. We thank you that we are not left to the blindness of our sin. We thank you that we have a sure path. I pray that you give us the courage to follow it because it is very difficult, Lord. Very difficult to be what you have called us to be when all the voices around us are telling us to be something else. Let your sheep know your voice, Lord Jesus. Give us the strength to follow it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.